Good morning, everyone. We are in 1 Peter chapter 5 today, and if you were to look on your bulletin, you'd see that Mark Sherwood was supposed to speak today, but he wasn't able to, so I really do miss his teaching, his wonderful sense of humor, and I'm sorry he couldn't be with us today, but I would exhort you all to pray for Mark Sherwood. He was a wonderful friend. He's a good teacher, and as I mentioned, I love his sense of humor. He's a very funny man and uh, a good teacher to boot. So here we are in 1 Peter chapter 5, and since chapter 5 starts with the word therefore, I'm going to back up a little bit to 1 Peter 4.17 so you have the context and understand why the therefore is there. 1 Peter 4.17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Paul said that we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Before the full unfolding of the messianic kingdom, there will be judgments from God. The prophets all mention judgments coming first upon the people of God before coming upon the nations. For example, we have this in Zechariah 13.8. It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. In Malachi 3.1, another prophet has the same kind of message, that judgment comes on the people of God first. Malachi 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. In First Peter, the coming of the Lord in his end-time judgment begins with birth pangs, which will purify believers, just as he did Israel. This judgment is not punishment for a believer's sin, which were all laid on Jesus Christ. While this preliminary judgment of Christian suffering is taking place, the final doom of the disobedient unbelievers is confirmed and will certainly follow shortly. Peter cites Proverbs 13, 11.31, to reinforce this thought. If the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? 
The righteous are those people who have placed their faith in Christ as their Savior and therefore have his righteousness accredited to them. They are just saved with difficulty, as the New American Standard says. The rest fall far short, and only great disaster awaits them. Verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. The title, Faithful Creator, reminds each believer of God's love and power in the middle of trials so that they will not doubt his keen interest nor his capability. They commit their souls to God even when it hurts. For a believer to continue in good works despite trials is a concrete sign of faith and a testimony to unbelievers. After all, we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. So 1 Peter 5.1, therefore, links the preceding passage that we've just read. Because of intense suffering and persecution, each of the local churches need pastoral. The elders are the pastoral leaders of the local congregation. They are the examples. They are a team of encouragers. There is no lone ranger in biblical spiritual leadership. The Bible always puts spiritual leadership in the hands of a plurality, even in the Old Testament. That's why Moses had Aaron and Miriam's help and a series of judges to help, as well as Joshua in later years. The tribe of Levi had multiple priests serving Israel in shifts, not just one priest. There were multiple elders in the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, as well as several elders in each of the local synagogues. So that is the pattern the Lord has established through the ages. Multiple leadership, multiple leaders multiple elders. Therefore, verse 1, therefore the elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Chapter 5 begins with three vital urgings of exhortations of motivation to all the church elders. First, shepherd the flock of God willingly and voluntarily, not being forced to. Second, don't ever be a leader of God's people for money. And do it eagerly and lovingly as under-shepherds of the great shepherd. Third, never rule over them as a tyrant or like a pot-bellied small-town sheriff with a tiny brain and a big gun whose word is law. Some churches teach that Peter was the first pope and had power and authority to command as head of the church and chief shepherd. But the Bible teaches that Christ is both the head of the church And the chief shepherd, Peter, appeals to the elders not as pope or head of the church, but merely as a humble fellow elder in verse 1. He doesn't even mention his apostolic authority. Neither does the apostle John in 2 John 1 or 3 John 1, either passage. Peter follows his own advice and doesn't lord it over them or even command them as apostle. Instead, 
he hollers down to us through the centuries to anyone who will listen, hey guys, I'm not St. Peter the majestic pontiff in papal robes sitting on a throne in a palatial cathedral. I'm only Rocky the poor Christian fisherman sitting on a three-legged wooden stool in a house church whom the Lord invited to be a fisher of men. He also has three other reasons. First, as a fellow elder who Jesus charged with the care of his sheep, feed my sheep as diligently and sincerely as a dying man to dying men. And by the way, that's the reason that each of us who speak from this pulpit speak sincerely as a dying man to dying men. That's it. Because the message is from the bread of heaven who came down from heaven, the bread of life. It's a serious message. We each have a serious responsibility. And as you see, we try to handle the word of God in that manner. Serious stuff. It's for your eternal destiny. Peter has three other reasons. First, as a fellow elder who Jesus charged with the care of the sheep, feed my sheep. Second, he testifies to seeing Christ's sufferings in Gethsemane and Calvary, so the suffering. Third, he is a sharer in the coming glory. Consequently, there's no such thing as clergy and laity distinctions in Scripture. We are all equal believers before God. Therefore, the Lord God states in Revelation 2.6, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also Hate. Again, Revelation 2.15, Scripture says, Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Nike means victory in Greek. Why a shoe manufacturer adopted that name for sports shoes. Nicolaitans means victory over the laity, which God emphatically states twice that he hates. Victory over the laity is not scriptural. It's wrong. God hates it. He says explicitly, I hate it. Biblical elders are servant leaders. They're not autocratic, rich-robed potentates. Peter was a biblical servant leader. Peter was an elder, just like the elders in our local church. The reward for faithfully serving and leading the flock of God is receiving the crown of glory does not fade away. Faithful shepherding includes protecting, protecting against wolves, those who would destroy the flock. It includes leading, leading the thirsty to refreshing cool water. It includes guiding, guiding by being examples. It includes feeding, feeding God's flock the deep clover and fresh nourishing grass of the word of God. It's not the elder's flock, it's God's flock. They are merely under-shepherds, which is why we need to pray for them regularly. We need to listen to them. We need to obey them. Obey those who rule over you and be as submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. If that sounded like Scripture, it is. Found in Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey the elders of the church. Respect and follow their advice. Pray for them regularly. After all, they pray for you regularly and are deeply concerned with your physical and spiritual welfare. Pray for their families and their children. 
adult children abandoning the fellowship and the faith is a great grief to elders. Pray for restoration and healing. Pray for wisdom for them when there is dissension in the fellowship. The enemy of men's souls loves to stir up conflict between Christian families of the fellowship, and sometimes there's no easy answers or quick fixes. Pray for unity and love to continue to abound among the elders and the fellowship. Thank the Lord for their willingness to serve. Ask the Lord for a hedge of protection around them and their families and to crown their efforts with success. And if an elder suffers illness on a bed of weakness, pray that he will not feel useless, but will be encouraged by the continual love of the congregation and by the Lord, the chief shepherd. Pray that his devotion to the needs of others will not impose on the needs and refreshment of his own family. They put their trousers on one leg at a time, just like you do. They have the same needs you have. Let them know that you pray for them. Show hospitality to them. Encourage them and help them to build up the body of Christ in their most holy faith, because that would be a good work. It would be an encouragement to them. Verse 5, likewise, you younger men, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, younger men might be like frisky lambs, tempted to rebel and obstinately go a different direction. They are warned against that. When the Lord calls us sheep of his pasture, and many of our hymns today had that theme, is not being complimentary. When I was nine years old, a Kansas farmer had a large flock and gave us a young lamb as a pet to raise with the agreement that we were to give him back when he was fully grown. So my sister and I were thrilled for about two days. He was a cute little booger. We brought him home in a cardboard box in the back seat of the car. We fed him milk out of a baby bottle. We named him Frisky. He had the IQ of a rock. He never learned to obey or do things for his own benefit or protection. All his decisions were the wrong ones. He would go stray. We picked stickers and nettles out of his wool. He required constant attention and would run away given the slightest chance despite loving care. Soon the loving care was drudgery. We had to hunt him down and bring him back. We had to feed and water him often. We had to watch over him and try to keep him confined in a pen. He escaped and hurt himself. We tended his self-inflicted wounds. He grew and became much more burden than fun. He was no longer cute. At the end of the year, we were more than glad to give him back to the farmer and to get even. We sincerely hoped they made lamb chops out of Frisky and that the farmer choked on lamb kebabs and died. That would have been even. So Peter's admonition is this. Don't be like Frisky. Don't do it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We are all sheep of his pasture. We all have that tendency to go astray, to go wrong, to make the wrong decision. Clothe yourselves with humility, it says here. In the, literally means for a slave to put on an apron before serving. Christians are to imitate the Lord who girded himself with a towel and washed the disciples' feet. 
James 4, 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Note the God's provision of grace to the submissive and God's opposition to the proud. Both passages are quotes from Proverbs 3.34. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. Notice that these verbs are in the present tense. Both verbs. The timeless character of the Proverbs stresses that these are God's constant activities. He continually scorns the scornful. He continually gives grace to the humble. Verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. The mighty hand of God includes discipline as well as protection and deliverance. The whole destiny of Christians, whether suffering or glory, is God-ordained. Throwing all your anxiety and care on Christ refers to persecution and problems. It includes all the difficulty of a believer which he faces in a fallen world. That he cares for you means that God is not indifferent to our sufferings. And that's encouraging, isn't it? Verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Vigilant means to be actively aware, watchful, and alert. Belief in the sovereignty of God and his fatherly concern for us does not permit us to sit back and rest on the oars. It is God who works in us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling by being sober and vigilant against the enemy of men's souls. That enemy is like a roaring lion. Peter warns the flock of God, don't be devoured by the same lion like I was. Be sober, be watchful. This is Peter's warning where he himself failed while he was being sifted by Satan. Luke 22 explains that. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you. Within hours, Peter had failed to be sober in spirit and watching alert. Matthew 26, 38, Christ said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further, fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep. And he said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? A few hours later, Matthew 26, same chapter, verse 73. Scripture says, A little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Peter warns believers, Don't fall into the same trap that I did. Peter warns against assuming God's sovereign care is an excuse for inactivity. God's sovereignty does not preclude peril to the Christian life. Peter calls Satan your enemy or adversary, the devil, and likens him to a lion in search of prey. 
The word enemy or adversary means an opponent in a lawsuit. Devil, diabolus, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Satan, which means slanderer. According to scripture, he has great power on earth and is also called the God of this world or God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He's called the ruler of this world in John 14.30 and prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. But God has limited his activity and Satan has to get permission from God to attack believers like he did Job or Peter. Satan works through the worldly sons of disobedience in an attempt to destroy the infant church by persecution. Never stopped. To this day, he continues to undermine the church by attacking believers. The Christian response is firm resistance in faith in verse 9. Resist is the same word that is found in Ephesians 6 where believers are exhorted to put on the full armor of God in the context of struggle against hostile spiritual forces. Resistance in faith is illustrated in Revelation 12, 10, and 11, which says this, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Resist him steadfast in the faith means resist the devil by your positive faith and your trust in God. Support in the struggle comes from the realization that your sufferings as a Christian is not unique. First Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape. You may be able to bear it. The same kind of sufferings that you suffer are afflicting your brothers and sisters. There's godly encouragement in realizing that you're not alone and unique in your struggles in the faith. All who are in union with Christ can expect suffering. John fifteen eighteen says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. It's Christ's words. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. The whole body of Christ is joined together in suffering. Again, the exhortation in verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. The world is that orderly system under Satan that is opposed to God and his Messiah. Verse 9 then relates to the common lot of all believers in Christ. Verse 10, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So whether you suffer from falling into the snare and temptation of the devil like Peter did and weep bitterly, or whether you suffer from persecution like Peter did when he was beaten and thrown in prison, there is great comfort and reward promised. Notice verse 10. The grace of God will perfect you. 
That is, make you complete. The grace of God will establish you. That is, make your foundation firm. The grace of God will strengthen you. That is, make you stronger. Finally, the grace of God will settle you. That is, give you eternal rest and reward. To him be the glory forever. We all join Peter in that joyous acclaim to our gracious, loving God who will settle us in his kingdom. Look at the contrast between satanic opposition and God's purposes and enablement for Christians. God has as his gracious purpose to bring many sons to glory, to share in his glory. The eternal glory contrast with the temporary trials all Christians suffer now. Verse 12, By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which stand. Silvanus is also called Silas in other biblical passages like Acts 15.22. Silas was one of the leading men of the early church and was a fellow missionary with Paul, was imprisoned with him in Thyatira. Peter summarizes his brief letter as exhortation and testimony. Exhortation includes commands for ethical living, and testimony is the reliability of what he has witnessed. His final exhortation is to stand fast in the grace of God. None of us earns our merits. Rather, Peter reminds us that all Christians are obligated to live in the true grace of God. We never receive that grace. Serve it. Verse 13, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Babylon is probably a cryptic reference to Rome. According to early church tradition, Peter was in Rome. He could be a code word for the small group of believers in Rome because of that small church. Or it could be an allusion to the exile of God's people in Rome in the same way that ancient Israel was exiled in Babylon. Early church letter of the non-canonical book, 1 Clement 5, 4 through 7, names Peter and Paul as victims of persecution by Nero at Rome, which began after the disastrous fire on July 19, 64 AD. First Peter is written from Babylon, according to Clement, and is a code word for Rome. Similar usage is found in Revelation 14.8, where Babylon is mentioned as the great city which rules over the kings of the earth. First Peter was probably written in Rome shortly before Nero's great persecution, which was from 62 AD to 64 AD, those two years, where Christians were even used as lights. They would douse them in oil and then light them on fire. They were stationed at different places around Nero's palace. A horrible way to die in persecution, and yet Christians were willing to do that. Devotion, incredible. The persecution was incredible during Nero's reign. Mark, my son, is referring to John Mark, his spiritual son, not his physical son. Verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. The formal kiss was common among early Christians as an expression of love in the church. From the 3rd century A.D., the sexes were separated in the practice of the kiss of love, but it's a cultural thing. When Mill and I lived in France, we kissed all the men and women in greeting on both cheeks, and they still that, do that today in all the French churches. Hispanic and Italian 
cultures have the embrasio. Peace, shalom, was the common Hebrew blessing. In verse 14, peace to you all. And Peter's first letter begins and ends with peace. Grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. May God grant you that peace.